Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode in our podcast series of Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and supported by Noosa FM Radio 101.3. I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Back in October last year, I had the pleasure and privilege of interviewing Emeritus Professor Ian Lowe in an episode following the release of a report by the UN Intergovernmental Panel, IPCC, on climate change from its sixth cycle assessment. As one of Australia's leading authorities and indeed an international expert on climate change, Ian provided a host of information, interpretation, clarification and insights relative to the theme of that report from the working group number two of the IPCC, which dealt with issues related to impact, adaption and vulnerability. The news was not comforting. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity of speaking with him again in this interview, which is being prompted by a recent release of the report from the third working group of the IPCC, which focuses on aspects related to the mitigation of climate change. Welcome back, Ian. It's a pleasure, Richard. So let's start with a couple of points of clarification or or definition. What does the IPCC mean when it talks about mitigation? And how does that differ from adaptation? And how are both related to the issue of global emissions? When the IPCC talks about mitigation, they're talking about slowing down the rate of climate change. When they talk about adaptation, they're talking about responding to the change which has happened. Uh, So, for example, uh, we know that the Earth has warmed by about 1.1 degrees since pre-industrial times. And even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, we would need to live with that increased temperature with the resulting changes in rainfall patterns, increased sea level, more frequent extreme events and so on. But for, for how long? Is that forever? Well, basically forever, and uh, because uh, we've permanently increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. Now, in principle, we could reduce it by um, planting uh, billions of trees that uh, mm-hmm. would take carbon dioxide out of the air. Right. But uh, at the moment, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is about 420 parts per million, yep. the highest level recorded in pre-industrial times since humans have existed is about 280 parts per million. So there's about one and a half times as much carbon dioxide in the air now than Mm -hmm. there has been at any time when humans have existed. And that's basically because we've been burning coal, oil and gas and turning the carbon in those fuels into carbon dioxide and releasing it into the atmosphere. Was there any prescience in, in measuring the CO2 at that time or just happenstance? Well, uh, there were no measurements until the 1950s, but there was a warning in the late 19th century. The Swedish scientist Arrhenius uh, worked out that burning of fossil fuels like coal uh, could change the global climate. He wrote a paper in the 1890s and he coined the term the greenhouse effect because he realised that the trace gases in the atmosphere, like carbon dioxide and water vapour, act like the glass in a greenhouse. Glass is transparent to visible light. So in a greenhouse or in a car parked in the sun, the sunlight shines in and that warms the interior. Uh, The interior tries to radiate the heat out 
but because glass absorbs in the infrared, the heat can't get out mm-hmm. and the temperature in a greenhouse is warmer so that people can grow tomatoes in the English winter okay. and the temperature in a car parked in the sun becomes dangerously high so that small children or dogs left in cars are at peril because of the increasing temperature. Right. Now, Arrhenius said that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere works the same way. It's transparent to visible light, so it allows sunlight to reach the Earth. The Earth gets warmer. And when the sun sets, the Earth tries to radiate heat into space, but it's absorbed by the carbon dioxide. And that's the fundamental reason why the average temperature on Earth is about 33 degrees higher than that on the moon. Same average distance from us as the sun gets the same amount of solar radiation, but the heat that the moon absorbs during the day is rapidly lost when the sun sets, it's radiated out into space. And uh, most of your listeners would be familiar with a demonstration of the greenhouse effect, the fact that a clear night in winter is much colder than a cloudy night, because on a cloudy night, there's an extra belt of water vapour, an extra absorption of heat, and so the temperature doesn't fall nearly as much as on a clear night where the heat is radiated more rapidly into space. So So why are there there clouds around the moon? Well, because there's no water on the moon. I mean, the clouds are basically water vapour, which is evaporated from the ground. So the fact and it has no atmosphere because of the absence of life, presumably. Uh, that's right, and uh, it's probably also not sufficiently large to have enough gravity to keep any gases there. They just drift right. off in space. Uh, so when the IPCC talks about mitigation, what they're saying is that uh, we are still every year burning increasing amounts of fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas and putting increasing amounts of extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so the greenhouse effect is being strengthened a little bit more every year. 10 years ago, what they said was that to have a 50-50 chance of keeping the increase in average global temperature below two degrees, global emissions of greenhouse gases would need to peak by 2020 and then go steeply downwards. Well, they didn't peak in 2020, they're still going up. And the latest report is really sounding an urgent warning that Mm. unless we urgently reduce the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the increase in uh, average global temperature is likely to be between two and a half and three degrees. Now, we've already seen very significant issues arising from the 1.1 to 1.2 degree increase in average global temperature we've seen more serious heat waves, uh, more bushfire risk, more very hot days, increasing sea levels, changes to rainfall patterns, problems of food production and so on. So uh, we're basically committed to that problem getting worse, but how much worse it gets will depend on how urgently we respond to the warnings from the science, how urgently we clean up the supply and use of energy, and how (laughs) urgently we reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that are being released. I noted uh, that in a report, the IPCC identified clean electricity and agriculture, forestry and land use in the sector as the the greatest emissions where reductions could be achieved, uh, and then industry and transport and, and others. And there were other low emission opportunities in production, buildings, urban sector, and so on. What chance have we got of actually doing that, particularly in this country? 
Well, we could very easily and very economically reduce the emissions from electricity supply. When I was first uh, writing about this in the 1980s, there was a very serious price to pay because by far the cheapest electricity was from coal-fired power stations. And 10 years ago, it was still true, in 2010, the average world price of electricity from coal-fired power stations was about 11 cents a kilowatt hour. From wind turbines was about 14. From solar panels was about 35. So 10 years ago, it was literally true that solar electricity was about three times the price of electricity from coal-fired power stations and wind turbines were a bit more expensive than coal. The 2020 figures, the average world price of electricity from coal-fired power stations is still about 11 cents a kilowatt hour, Mm -hmm. but the average from large wind turbines is 4.1 cents, and the average of solar farms is now 3.7 cents. And the lowest I've found was a new solar farm in Portugal, which is producing electricity at 1.1 cents a kilowatt hour. The electricity from solar and wind is now not just a bit cheaper than coal. It's about a third the price of coal. And CSIRO and the Australian Energy Market Operator do an annual study called GenCost, which looks at the cost of producing electricity with various technologies. And what that says is that uh, solar farms and large wind turbines with enough storage to be what the industry calls firm capacity that uh, is about six cents a kilowatt hour. The average wholesale price on the grid is about eight, uh, and the price of electricity from the old coal-fired power stations is 10 or 11. So there is now no economic price to phasing out coal and replacing it with solar and wind. In fact, that is now the cheapest form of electricity supply. And there's absolutely no reason not to say, for example, uh, large buildings that are largely occupied during the day, like shopping centres or office blocks, should be mandated to have solar panels on the roof to produce Mm. electricity. Mm. You're doing the operators of those buildings an economic favour by requiring them to use cheap electricity from the sun rather than buying much more expensive electricity from the grid. So in principle, uh, it's now entirely possible, and there are serious engineering studies that show that we could, if there were the political will, phase out coal completely by 2030, and we could be powering Australia totally from solar and wind with storage. And I saw just the other day, South Australia was producing 136% of its electricity needs from solar and wind. In other words, it was producing all of its electricity from solar and wind with an additional 36% of their total demand that they were exporting uh, to uh, less progressive states like Victoria uh, by the linkages that connect our state systems. It always seems to me interesting that when um, commentators with an ideological bias talk about what happens when the wind doesn't blow and what happens when the sun doesn't shine, forgetting the the crucial issue of storage. That's right. And there have been uh, several studies done of the possibilities of battery storage or pumped hydro storage. Uh, One by three academics at the Australian National University, uh, Ken Baldwin, Malcolm Stock and Andrew Blowers, looked around the 
electricity grid, and they identified 22,000 possible sites for small-scale pumped hydro storage, of which you would need to use the best 50 to have enough storage to run the grid totally off solar and wind. Hmm. And um, interestingly, the New South Wales government, which has a target of getting basically almost all its electricity from solar and wind by 2030, has called commercial tenders for the construction of eight pumped hydro storage facilities in that state. The uh, Marshall Liberal government in South Australia Uh, after the Wetherill government had been bucketed by the Commonwealth government for recklessly investing in a big battery, actually doubled down on by by commissioning an even bigger battery. Yes, I saw that. They recognised that it made sense to store the solar and wind for the times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. So it's now entirely technically possible Mm. to move over a period of eight to 10 years from a situation where the majority of our electricity in the eastern states still comes from coal to one where the happy position of South Australia, where we're getting basically all of our electricity from solar and wind. It's amazing. Easy. You talk about uh, political will. I'm reminded of way back in the 1950s when I was a student, um, we had exchange students from Denmark. And this um, young person uh, once said to me, we just had a sort of meeting over the entire nation uh, talking about what do we do next as a country? We're sick of being a pig farm. We now want to do something. And he said the discussions led to the realisation that they had solid state physicists in the country of singular repute. And why didn't they move into electronics, which indeed they then did. And then more recently, the same uh, sort of strategic planning process occurred again. This time they said, what's next? And they came up with the whole idea of, well, wind generation is an obvious thing we could do. And now it seems to me that there isn't a, a, um, I'd say windmill, but they're not mills at all, are they? Uh, But wind generating machine, if you will, uh, if it's not entirely Danish, it's got Danish parts in it. And that seems to me for a little country like that, an illustration of what political will can do, recognizing the anomaly of saying, well, the longer we keep people employed in these dead industries, the, the longer it's going to be before we have the opportunity to open up whole new industries with whole new employment opportunities. That's exactly right. And and the number of people employed in those old industries is actually comparatively small. Richard mm. Dennis from the Australia Institute points out more people work for Anglicare than work in the coal industry. <laughs> more people work for McDonald's than work in the coal industry. Yeah. It's actually a very small employer because production is largely mechanised. Um, in countries that have phased out coal, like Germany, they've done it by having a strategic approach. Uh, in the case of Germany, it involved generous retirement packages for older workers, mm. or proper retraining packages for younger workers to equip them for the new jobs in the new emerging industries, right. strategic location of the new generating technologies like wind turbines and solar farms right. in the regions where the coal jobs were being lost. And as a result, basically, coal mining has been phased out in Germany with almost no social or political problems because it was a proper strategic approach that right. uh, built in structural adjustment. How did they deal with the, with the capital that was, was invested that's then become isolated and dead? Well, uh, in most cases, the uh, capital invested in coal-fired power stations has long ago been amortised. Yeah. Um, and the reason the commercial sector 
is accelerating the closing down of coal-fired power stations is that they're no longer particularly economic, that the, right. the cost of maintenance um, means that uh, they can't really compete. And it's a little-known fact that the most unreliable component of the electricity grid by a considerable distance is the old coal-fired power stations, particularly the old brown coal stations in Victoria. Mm -hmm. in fact, I think uh, the summer before last, um, they were going uh, belly up on average uh, at the rate of about one every couple of days. Mm. Uh, and it was only the solar and wind from South Australia that was keeping the lights on in Victoria as the old coal-fired power stations proved increasingly unreliable on, on hot days. What um, uh, an international report has recently found is that just the running costs of old coal-fired power stations, and indeed old nuclear power stations for that matter, that have long ago amortised their capital cost means they can't compete with large-scale solar or wind. Mm. And uh, so old power stations that have amortised their capital long ago are being closed down because they're no longer economic. What's the seduction of some countries still remaining committed to the nuclear power stations? Well, there's, there's relatively few. Uh, uh, I mean, if you exclude China, hmm. there's very few nuclear power stations being built around the world. And the International Atomic Energy Agency predicts that the amount of nuclear electricity will decline in this decade as the number of old power stations being closed down is greater than the number of new ones being built. Right. And in Western Europe, uh, there's one being built in the UK at Hinkley Point, uh, one in France and one by the French authority in Finland. And they are all years behind schedule and billions over budget. And the one in the UK is only continuing because the government has basically guaranteed that they'll be able to uh, recover their investment by charging two or three times what the average grid price is. Oh, is that right? Mm. So uh, apart from China, and I think the other example is the United Arab Emirates, basically uh, nuclear power stations are only being built on any scale in countries where there is no democratic participation. Right. Because, um, the, they don't make a lot of economic sense. The one country that is will remain critically dependent on nuclear power for quite some time is France. Mm -hmm. That's because of a unique set of social and political circumstances. Mm -hmm. France basically closed down its coal industry in the 1960s wow. when oil was cheap. Mm -hmm. And they decided that they would replace coal-fired power with oil-fired power stations. Mm. Uh, and at the time, the world price of oil was about uh, $1.80 US a barrel. Wow. Then the 1970s oil crisis happened, uh, and it happened initially because the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries was demanding the uh, up-to-then outrageous price of $5 a barrel for their <laughs> oil. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, that caused a bit of uh, resentment in the developed countries that were buying the oil until uh, OPEC pointed out that in most cases, uh, the government in countries like the UK or France or the US was actually uh, earning more per litre of oil than the producing countries. Gosh. And so the, uh, the antagonism evaporated and the price of oil went up. And by 1979, the price of oil was nearly $30 US a barrel. Mm. And suddenly oil-fired power was prohibitively expensive. 
but uh, France had closed down its coal industry, so it couldn't really go back to that. So they embarked on a, a crash program of building nuclear power stations. Mm. And uh, the result of that is that uh, France still gets about three quarters of its electricity from nuclear power stations. And it's difficult to see how they could do without nuclear on a timescale less than about 20 years to, to build alternatives. But um, globally, uh, the nuclear share of electricity has declined from about 17% 30 years ago to about 10% now. It's just not, um, not economic. In fact, that, that same study which found that the average price for solar and wind is now 3.7 and 4.1 cents a kilowatt hour respectively, found the price of electricity from new nuclear power stations was 16 cents a kilowatt hour, about four times the price of solar or wind. It just doesn't make economic sense. Are there any countries in the world uh, with which you're familiar which wouldn't or couldn't at the moment benefit from wind and solar or wind and or solar? Which could or couldn't? Which couldn't. I think uh, even in uh, countries uh, that are a long way from the equator, um, like the UK and Germany and, and the Scandinavian countries, uh, there's still significant amounts of solar energy uh, mm -hmm. because most people don't appreciate just uh, how much energy is delivered to us by the sun. In Australia, on a summer day when the sun's shining, the rate at which energy is hitting the Earth's surface is about one kilowatt per square metre. In other words, the, the amount of sunlight uh, hitting an area about uh, two metres square is equivalent to the peak demand of a typical Australian house. That's uh, extraordinary. Uh, mm. you, you can do the, the calculations. I mean, you, you would need an area about 20 kilometres square of solar panels to collect uh, enough solar energy to power Australia completely. Gosh, and that's not much. It's not much at all. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why it makes sense to be saying that new houses and in particular new shopping centres, new office blocks, uh, new sporting uh, centres uh, should have solar panels on the roof. The, the other issue uh, is efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, there's no absolute need for energy. Uh, an American energy analyst said people don't want energy, they want hot showers and cold beer. <laughs> and if you think about it, you know, I've never heard anyone say I've got to go and get some kilowatts. What right. <laughs> the capacity to keep the beer cold, uh, to see after dark, to right. and so on, to move around. And um, it's still true that a lot of the technology we use to convert energy into the services we want, like cooling or heating or cooking or washing, is alarmingly inefficient. Yep. Um, to quantify that, there was a report done for the Howard government nearly 20 years ago, the National Framework for Energy Efficiency, and it concluded we could reduce our emissions by about 30% using cost-effective existing technology that would pay for itself in less than four years. Gosh. Uh, and it's still true today that uh, we could we could probably reduce our energy use to about half what it is mm. just by using best available technology. A lot of the appliances on sale in Australia could not legally be sold in the European Union. Um, some of them couldn't even be sold in some states of the USA, which is hardly a, a paragon mm. of energy. <laughs> no. Basically, you know, junk technology that can't be sold in the European Union gets mm. dumped. Australian market, and we pay for it you know, not just environmentally but um, uh, financially. I mean, sure. if your fridge 
takes twice as much electricity as it should, mm. uh, you are paying more in your electricity bills and the, the climate is being unnecessarily damaged. Yeah. Ian, as always, I'm astounded by your encyclopedic knowledge. Having an interview with you is really the wrong word. It's just listening to you because your tales are, or tales, your, your narration is so compelling. And I thank you very much indeed for yet again contributing to this podcast series. And uh, I'm sure that the listeners have enjoyed it just as much as I have. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, Richard. And thank you all for listening. And I look forward to meeting you again in the not too distant future. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye.